You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Richard Saitoic, M.D., is the author of The Man Who Tasted Shapes. With David Eagleman, he wrote Wednesday is Indigo Blue, Discovering the Brain of Synesthesia. Thank you for speaking with me, Dr. Saitoic. Delighted to be here. Now, Richard, uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit. Uh, tell me about the reception of your first book. Well, that was um, 16 years ago when that first came out. Well, actually, the one before that was the first book ever in English, and that was a textbook called Synesthesia, A Union mm-hmm. of the Senses in 1989. Mm-hmm. So, but when I first told my colleagues about having found Michael Watson, the man who tasted shapes, mm-hmm. um, they looked at me like I was insane, and they said, well, what is this CAT scan show? And I said, no, no, you don't understand. There's nothing wrong with him. He, he has a combination of touch and taste so that flavor for him is more than a mouthful. And they said, he's got to be on drugs or, you know, some old hippie or an artist and uh, stay away from this. It's it's too new age, too weird. It will ruin your career. Uh, that's kind of amazing. It, you know, well, that's the reaction mm-hmm. of orthodoxy to something it doesn't understand, which is either to deny it or explain it away. Mm-hmm. So, a very common kind of synesthesia, for example, is seeing letters and numbers and colors. That is the the visual form of the letter or numeral outline evokes a a sensation of color, which stays the same throughout a person's lifetime. And people, you know, critics said, well, they're just remembering, uh, you know, refrigerator magnets that they played with as children or coloring books and all that. And, of course, you know, millions of us played with refrigerator magnets, and we're not synesthetic. And, in fact, we show that it's, it's not learning, it's not memory. This is a genuine perceptual trait. It's really now, the, the scientific world, on one hand, reacted to it with then with some skepticism. How did the literary... Oh, great, great skepticism. <laughs> now, now, how did the literary and the general audience react to it? Well, after I presented my first uh, scientific paper at an international meeting, uh, the postman started delivering the most incredible things of, you know, 25-page typed manuscripts with crayon drawings, uh, people trying to show me what it was that they experienced, uh, and to a person, things like, you know, I ran to my husband waving the magazine article saying, look, this is me, I'm not nuts. In other words, there was an enormous sense of relief that uh, most synesthetes, you see, are shocked to discover as children that everybody else isn't like them. And Mm -hmm. so they're ridiculed and told they're making it up, and so they they clam up, they don't talk about it. But that, of course, doesn't stop the the extra colors and shapes and sensations from occurring. So then they think that they're the only person in the world, and they live in this very um, isolated psychological bubble and so when they find out that, it, one, there's a name for this, two, it's been recognized for 300 years in both the medical and the psychological literature, and three, the best part, is that there's, there are extra like them that they can talk to. There is such a feeling and expression of relief that it's often tearful. That's really fascinating. Now, one of the things that strikes me about this, when I first saw the, the, even just the title of the book, The Man Who Tasted Shapes, I thought, wow, that's not a bad thing. That's kind of a good thing. 
could you talk about this? Uh, you know, there's. it seems, obviously, it causes these people some grief in their life, but this doesn't seem like it's necessarily entirely a disorder. Oh, no, I, I don't like to call it a disorder at all, mm-hmm. because there is... It's only abnormal in being statistically rare, mm-hmm. and, and we've recently found out that it's not so rare as we thought. One in 23 people have some kind of synesthesia, and we can hopefully talk about why that gene is maintained so frequently in the population. Uh, um, just the, the perceptions of this as not being necessarily oh, a bad no, thing. Oh, no, they love having it. They, mm-hmm. Let me start that again. Synesthetes love having this. They wouldn't uh, give this up for anything in the world, even when it does cause some you know, social embarrassment or ridicule, for example. And they look at us and say, well, how could you listen to music if it doesn't have any shapes and colors and movement to it? I mean, to them, music is like fireworks, you know, a constant uh, kaleidoscope of these, of these configurations that appear and, and move around a bit and fade away and are replaced by something else on and on as long as the sound is going on. Now, now let's uh, talk about some of the different types of synesthesia. What's the most common? You say the most common type are letters that assume a certain color. Take us through the different kinds that you found most prevalent and some of those that have been most striking to you, the people that you've talked to. Well, the, the most common is perceiving the days of the week as colored. Mm. This is often um, occurs in, in the conjunction with what's called the number form, that is, anything that has an ordinal or serial characteristic to it, so the letters of the alphabet, the numbers, years, ages, weights, temperatures, you name it, anything that has a sequence assumes a geometric configuration in space that often wraps around their bodies. So when you say, where is 13, they'll say, it's down here at the left by my knee, for example. Or, wow. You know, or they look up to the number 64. So one, one person, for example, for whom six is physically bigger than, than nine, doesn't understand the mathematical equivalence of how nine could be greater than six, because physically it's not, you see. So it leads to some confusion. And in fact, the physicist Richard Feynman, the Nobelist, um, said, you know, he talked about the colors of his equations, which he would mention in lectures, and he thought to himself, he said, these kids must think I'm, I'm crazy, but this is how I see it. Well, this must have, in a sense, I think that uh, synesthesia sounds like it's a, a, a positive trait in many ways. If it helps yes. you uh, view the world through a, a more fine lens, in a sense. Well, for a, yeah, a more refracted way, I mm-hmm. suppose. Um, but, and then when you ask people, well, what good does it do? Um, and they say, without, a, without fail, they say, well, it helps you remember things. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when you measure synesthetes' memory, they are much higher than average. Some of them have uh, what's called eidetic, or popularly known as photographic memory. And I first actually learned the word synesthesia when I was uh, sniffing around in the sub-basement of the medical library in my, during my internship, and I came across a book about a memory expert who could retain limitless amounts of material thanks to a five-fold synesthesia in all of his senses. So he had all these extra hooks to hang things on, and so re- recalling them was effortless to him. And I thought, ooh, what a cool word. Anesthesia, no sensation. Synesthesia, joint sensation. And I filed that away in the back of my mind until my neighbor, who was a new uh, faculty member at the School of the Arts in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, 
uh, invited me to dinner, and then he delayed our seating with the comment that there weren't enough points on the chicken. At which point, everybody said, ha ha, Michael, what are you smoking? And he and I talked further, and he said, well, with an intense flavor, a feeling sweeps down my arm, and I feel weight, shape, texture, and temperature, as if I'm actually grasping something. I thought a minute, and I retrieved that word from the back of my mind, and I said, oh, you've got synesthesia. And his response was, you mean there's a name for this? And, you know, then history, you know, long story short, I was in a place where I could do uh, fairly sophisticated experiments on him, and uh, that was the basis of uh, my second book, uh, The Man Who Tasted Shapes. Now, um, one of the things that strikes me, back in 93, when you were doing that research, there's a, we have a lot of technology now that we don't then, didn't then. Um, could you talk about the impact of technology on your studies, especially all the recent, you know, fairly highly refined kind of scanning techniques to, that show activity well, in the I, brain? Well, anybody who knows me knows that for decades I have, I have been thumbs down to scanning mm-hmm. because it leads to intellectual laziness mm-hmm. and misunderstanding. It's very easy to point. So, so for example... Uh, well, let me back up. It's easy to point, prove that synesthesia is real with, you know, paper and pencil. You don't need billion-dollar machines. Mm-hmm. But that said, even the, you know, the hardest-nosed skeptics want pictures of the brain because they will only accept a third-person verification of what is essentially a first-person experience. Right, a subjective experience. Right, and so as the, as the decades roll by, we have different kinds of, of, of technology to, to, to look at this. And, uh, of course, the latest is functional magnetic imaging. So, for example, when um, people say, when I hear words, I see colors. So you put them in a scanner and you you have them hear words through through headphones, and lo and behold, the color area of the the brain, V4, lights up. I should say parenthetically that V4, the, the unique color area of the human brain, was discovered only in 1989, which is after my first textbook on the subject. So it just shows you how science changes tremendously over mm-hmm. a short period of time. So, that tech, so basically what that, what that uh, technique shows is that uh, the areas that you predict would be active are in fact active. But what I object to is when people get all excited and they point to that hot spot on the, on the picture and they say, well, there, that's where synesthesia is. And, of course, no, that's not, that's not true at all. That is only one node in a fairly extended network of different circuits and structures that participate in the synesthetic experiment. So, so uh, scanning is a gross oversimplification. The better technology, which, in fact, is roughly the same age uh, as, as the earliest CAT scanners, is, uh, is a, a genetic um, exploration where you can, you can uh, map different areas of, of chromosomes and find markers on them and locate where the gene is or a region where the gene is for a particular trait. And in fact, um, five groups around the world are now actively pursuing that and my colleague in Houston that you mentioned, David Eagleman, um, he's found an area on chromosome 2 um, which uh, is linked to synesthesia. And one of the, one of the reason that David got interested in this is that uh, synesthesia, first of all, it's, it's fairly common. It runs t- it's very strongly in families, mm-hmm. and, it's, and you either have it or you don't. I mean, it's, it's an 
an all-or-nothing thing. So therefore, you can get a lot of people in large families and take blood samples and look at their, their uh, DNA. All right. So this could be the first perceptual trait to which we can map the gene. Wow. That's... So David calls this perceptual genomics. It's a new term he's coined. Mm-hmm. Now, this is really fascinating. So we, have, so we have now, in synesthesia, this thing that everybody's poo-pooed as some, you know, either it didn't exist, or if it did, did exist, they said grudgingly, it was just some, you know, mere curiosity. And in fact, it's not. It's a peephole, a window onto a huge expanse of the mind and the brain. We have, um, we've, we've traced it at several levels, from the molecular to the uh, genetic, to the familial, to the behavior, to the gross behavior. So you've got everything going from genes to overt behavior, which is the gamut of human experience. Uh, that's really fascinating. And, and as you say, this really does speak to the entire function of, of the entire brain, since at all, all these senses are, are We're working combined. on multiple levels. Yes, yes. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that, that I found really interesting was the number of people who are synesthetes who are also artists. So talk about that, how that play, creativity plays into this. Mm. Yes, well, we've noted for a long time that synesthesia is more common in creative individuals, such as artists, composers, painters. Uh, so Vladimir Nabokov, for example, is a, a famous example I use. Uh, when he complained to his mother as a, as a toddler that the, that the colors on his wooden alphabet blocks were all wrong, she knew exactly what he meant because she had synesthesia, and Nabokov's son has synesthesia. And in fact, Dmitry Nabokov, the son, writes the afterword for Wednesday is Indigo Blue. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, then Kandinsky had four senses combined. Um, Boy, his, that makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> in his paintings, yeah. So he, he said, you know, blue was soft and, and had a touch of velvet, and, whereas orange was a prickly color. And colors also had sounds to them. So it's little wonder, perhaps, that he called some of his, his paintings compositions, and he labeled them composition two, composition five, etc. Now, so as... the, and so the question is, well, what do, what do what do artists have in common? And mm-hmm. one answer is, well, they're able to make metaphor pretty easily. They they mm. the similar and the dissimilar. They make connections, and that's what the synesthesia gene is doing it, when, when it's. And we like to think that it may be a genius. And of course, there's, 
there's no way to tell until once once we finally map down exactly where the gene is on on the chromosome areas that we've isolated, and then once having isolated the markers for the gene, go out and find who has it in the general population and what kind of people they are. Now, as chance would have it, I got an email from from uh, a woman who. Uh, is talking exactly about this kind of person. The person who says, I don't, want, I don't want polls, focus groups, marketing surveys. I know what the customer wants. I know this is going to succeed. And everybody says, oh, no, no, it won't, it won't, it won't. And of course, it does. So how do those people, are, how are they able to read all that and all the information out there and sort of know what's going to uh, reverberate with people? They may have the synesthesia gene. We don't know. It's an interesting speculation. So we could come at it from several areas, identify a, a type and see if they have the gene, and the other is to, do, uh, is to sort of do a shotgun approach and, and test large numbers of the population and see who carries the synesthesia gene and what behavioral or perceptual traits might go along with it. Can people who have... I'll, I'll bet you that lawyers don't have it. <laughs> I'm guessing not. Now, can people who have synesthesia um, sharpen their abilities, I mean, by exercising them in, in, I guess, the way that some a musician who spends a lot of time immersing themselves in music uh, learns to hear tones? Well, the um, answer to that is yes and no. No in the sense is that you, you, this trait manifests itself in early childhood, mm -hmm. and it's like perfect pitch. You either got it or you don't. You can't really acquire it by, by practicing, and you can't do much to hone it. But having said that, this is so much of a texture of people's reality that they don't think twice about it until their, their we call their attention to the fact that it's somewhat unusual. Mm -hmm. And so then they start paying more and more attention to it. And so in that sense, Yes, it, you can sharpen it because you are now you are now noting it more often as it happens in mm. your life. For example, Carol Steen, who's a sculptor and painter in New York, um, who's a synesthete. She, when she has her acupuncture sessions for a pain in her knee, when the needle goes in and out, she sees these marvelous shapes and forms, and so she's used that then in her her art. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, she says, they go by so fast that she can't capture them all. She says, oh, my God, a year's worth of sculpture goes by in, in two seconds, and I, I just can't grasp it. It's almost like a dream, you know. But she, she, she grabs some, and then she uses that for, for her, as the basis, uh, as a springboard for an artwork. Now, um, we know that there are musical scales, and there's a spectrum of color. Is, and, and, you know, it, for, except for people who are colorblind, there's a it's standard now. Is there a, is there a standard correlation between these two? But the way um, I can't tell you how often I get asked that question, particularly by music musicians who want to know what the what the code is between color and pitch. Mm. And the, and that is a question that Goethe asked back in, in you know, the 1700s and even before that. Dar Charles Darwin's grandfather asked the same question. Um, the, but the answer is no. There is no common core. There is no common uh, similarity between different synesthetes. But within a given synesthete, once it's once the associations are established in childhood, they stay constant throughout a person's entire life. And you see, and it was this idiosyncrasy, the fact that that 
two synesthetes, not even identical twins, would agree on the colors that they would see for the letters or for sounds and things, that made people say, "Oh, well, they're just they're just making it up." Now, um, it, synesthesia has is synesthesia in the DSM four? Um, no, why would it be? It's not a it's not an abnormality. As far as I know, it's not. So it, it's it's not in the DSM four because it's not an abnormality. No, there's nothing wrong with synesthesia. There's nothing wrong with synesthesia. Well, and this in is... fact, there there you could say that they're hyper normal mm-hmm. because here's the real kicker that I really like. All of us are synesthetic. It's just that a small fraction of us are consciously aware that we're synesthetic. So one of the, uh, I mean, when people ask me, you know, what's the so why, why have I studied this for for thirty years? Uh, and the answer is that it's caused a paradigm shift in two senses. One is that it shows us that the brain is much more cross-connected than we had imagined. And in fact, when I started this, the prevailing theory of how the brain was organized was called modularity. That is, mm-hmm. like in the HAL computer, those little chips that you stick in, and each, each little chip does a certain function. And so there's a language module, there's a vision module, you know, et cetera. Uh, and by definition, the modules did not and could not interact. Well, of course, if you have synesthesia or you're hearing colors, those modules are interacting, and therefore that theory must be wrong. Of course, people were so wedded to the theory that they said synesthesia is impossible, rather than maybe my theory is wrong. So I was always saying, maybe your theory is wrong. And of course, that turned that was, that was the case, and, and we now have much more uh, sophisticated models um, about how the brain works, and undoubtedly in the next generation they'll be replaced by something better. Um, and when I say that we're all synesthetes, uh, because, for example, sight and sound are so tightly bound and mapped to one another that even bad ventriloquists convince us that whatever moves is doing the talking. Hmm. For the same reason cinema convinces us that the sound is coming from the actor's mouths on the screen, not from the speakers surrounding us. Dance is another example of uh, cross-sensory mapping in which body rhythms imitate sound rhythms, both visually and kinetically. And we take these similarities, these these identities, these equivalences, so for granted that we never question them the way that we might colored hearing. So that's one way of the paradigm shift. And the second is in a a personal and psychological way because it makes you see that objectivity is not so objective. In fact, it's rather subjective. Mm. Uh, We've known for a long time, for example, that uh, eyewitnesses to the same event give dramatically different accounts. That's the Rashomon effect. So uh, synesthesia reminds us that each brain uniquely filters the world according to its own biases, experiences, memories, uh, expectations, desires. And so what it sees is a different viewpoint than from what you see. So it makes us sensitive to be more empathetic and, and uh, try to put ourselves in uh, other people's shoes. It would, might help in the current political climate, for example, but I don't have much hope for that. Uh, it sounds like synesthesia is, in a sense, a key to our own individualism and our own individual identities and maybe linked to our identities as well. Well, I don't know if I would say synesthesia is, but just to say that, um, you know, we, we have worshipped rationality and logic, you know, for so long. Um, 
but in fact, uh, there is uh, there's a lot more subjectivity to to what reality is. I mean, the old argument of you know if a, if, if light of a certain wavelength hits us and we all agree that it's red, well, first of all, we don't see according to wavelength. But um, you know, as long as you and I call call the same thing red, it doesn't matter what we're actually seeing, and there's no way of knowing what my that how, what my experience to what your experience is, and that language is the closest approximation we can come to that. I've been speaking with Richard Saitoic, MD. His new book is Wednesday is Indigo Blue, Discovering the Brain of Synesthesia. He co-wrote it with David Eagleman. Thank you for speaking with me, Richard. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.